384 of the Survival Podcast from snowy Arlington, Texas. Yes, it is snowing right now in my backyard. I am watching global warming fall from the sky, accumulate on my deck and on my roof shed. I don't know how much we're going to get today. Uh, doesn't look like we're going to get that much, but the radio and the TV told me we could get as much as two inches today, but not the 11 inches that we got in Arlington, which is between Dallas and Fort Worth, uh, last week. We had 11 inches of global warming on the ground. I know people will say, you got to understand, global warming can cause global cooling. Do you hear yourself talk? Anyway, uh, let's not go into that today. Today's going to be a listener feedback, question, commentary show. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, there's going to be a lot of politics, economic type stuff going on today. Hey, but that's the stuff that came in. You guys set the agenda for these listener feedback shows, not me. So I'm responding to what you asked for. If you're not into politics and economics, Hey, hang with it. You might learn something today, and I might present it to you in a hell of a different way that you're going to hear from the talking heads on the TV set, the empty suits on the TV set, and the talking microphones on conventional radio and media. Uh, there will also be some straight-up good old-fashioned prepper questions we'll take today just to keep things interesting and mixed up. Before we do that, though, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions for Science. What is the Survival Seed Bank? Is it a big pile of seeds for you to go out to your garden and plant right now or this spring? Absolutely not. Not that you couldn't, but that's not what it's for. It's designed to take a stockpile of seeds and make them available for up to 20 years as a backup so that if you ever get into a position where you cannot acquire seed, you have a reserve seed supply available to you. So check out that product. Sponsor of the day number two, Backyard Food Patrol. Food production uh, located somewhere in the vicinity of Austin, Texas, and uh, that won't help you find the exact location very well at all. Uh, but it's down in that area, and Marjorie runs that operation. They have a DVD that helps you learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Uh, I've watched this DVD eight times now. The eighth time was last night, because after 24, there was nothing on TV last night. And um, so instead of watching the mindless box, I got my laptop out, set it on the arm of the couch, had a whiskey and Coke, and uh, watched that DVD again. And I learned new things all over again after the eighth time watching it. You'll get more than $25 worth of value out of DVD, folks. I promise you that if you apply the information. So check it out. Next, a couple of announcements. I will be on Rifleman Radio tonight, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. That is put out by the American uh, Revolutionary War Veterans Association, uh, also known as the Appleseed Project, helping create riflemen throughout America. I'll be on there to talk about prepping and how being a rifleman fits into that. Uh, this will be a live show. You can call in. I think they have call in. I know you can text questions while we're uh, doing the show. There will be a link in today's show notes, and I'll ping the email list and remind you. Next up, subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you don't, you're going to miss an opportunity to win some free stuff this week. I'll leave it at that. Next up, join the Members Brigade if you have not already. It keeps getting better and better and better. That's the other announcement I have today. There's a company called Shelf Reliance. Shelf, not self, Shelf 
Reliance.com, like shelves that you put stuff on. Uh, when I saw this stuff, I went, we've got to do something with these guys. And I'm out of advertising space, so I couldn't bring them on as an advertiser. So I told them about the Members Brigade. I asked them to put something up to support the Members Brigade, and here's what they've done. 7%, 7, you know, 5, 6, 7, 7% off everything that they have, period, on their website, and some of the larger shelf systems were looking at three and four hundred dollar systems. Let's say that you did go out, and I know that might be a lot of money for some people, but if you want the best and you find a shelf that's even three hundred bucks that you want, uh, that's twenty one dollars off, right? Three times seven is twenty one. That's half of the. That's almost half of the members' brigade cost just with one discount. So these are a great company. have a lot of uh, great long-term storage foods and other products as well. But the shelving systems are really amazing. And I'm going to be reviewing one of those for you sometime in the next couple weeks. Another reason to subscribe to the YouTube channel. So if you've not joined Members Brigade yet, let me tell you, 20 cents an episode to support this show. And I'm making sure that you get back way more than you give because that's the way I do business. My goal is to make a membership worth $1,000 uh, in, in, in discounts and free stuff by the end of this year. I think I'm damn close to there already. And if I hit it early, I'll just keep going. I will make sure that your $50 is paid back, as long as you take advantage of the things that I put in there for you anyway. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, talk about kind of the main topic of today's show. And the first one actually comes from a comment from a show that I did a long, long time ago. I did a show, I think it was show number 18, called Can Liberty and Socialism Coexist? And my my view was that there's a place for socialism, and it's among equals that are there by choice. Therefore, it only belongs in private groups. So in other words, if you want socialist-type society, go get together with a bunch of people that have similar ideals to you and create your own little place where you can share everything. And that there were certain places where a socialist-type environment made sense, such as a kindergarten classroom. If you think about kindergarten, it's the epitome of socialism. And running a kindergarten classroom can't be easy. I've never done it. I won't do it. Uh, I'll go out and hunt uh, a great big bear with a bow and arrow, and I'll stand up to that type of fear, uh, or I'll stand ten yards away from a running bull elk, that charges through the timber, uh, which is a pretty intimidating experience. A lot of people don't think there's anything to be afraid of with an elk, but if you've ever had an elk bust out of dark timber 10 yards away from you with crap hanging from his horns, bugling and screaming and looking for a fight, it's pretty intimidating. I'll stand up to that, but I ain't standing up to a room of 30 kindergartners. And I can look at kindergartners and go, having everybody have a place and a time and everybody share and everybody be nice, that makes sense for kindergarten. But society's not kindergarten. So I did that show, and if you want to listen to it, the audio's crap because it's, it's again, it's one of the first 20 shows I ever did. Um, but you can listen to it, and you can get the whole thing. But here's the comment the guy left. It seems that many, and the guy's name is Phil, it seems that many are presenting a false choice between socialism and capitalism. The fact is that most progressive countries, stop, progressive, that's not a good word to most of us. We don't want to be progressive. Progressive is a way to change things so you're not calling it communism and you're making it sound more positive. It's good to be progressive. Well, a progressive tax is one that places the burden of taxation upon the people that produce the most and redistributes their wealth to the people that produce the least. Right? If you wanted everybody to be fair, which is what they say socialism is all about, if you wanted everybody to be equal, 
what you would say is that everybody pays, pays a flat tax, 10%. If you make 1000 you pay 100 If you make 100000 you pay 10000 That's fair, and the rich are still paying more. But no, we want the poor to pay nothing, right, so that they can stay poor, so they have no incentive to move up. And we want the wealthy to pay 33 34 35%, and that's just an income tax. In this country, people that do well for themselves, that make more than 50000 to to $100,000 a year and up, end up giving back about half of what they earn in total tax dollars when you add it all up. So we don't like the progressive world anyway. So you're not the positive. But he says most progressive countries have, in all capitals, combination of socialism and capitalism. Do you know what you get when you take socialism and capitalism and force them together? and then regulate capitalism, you get a fascist economy. Now, I know some of you are going to have a hard time understanding that, because history has convinced you fascism equals Hitler equals death camp. Okay? Mussolini was a fascist. No one denies that Mussolini was a fascist. Mussolini didn't have a bunch of death camps and gulags. But he was still a fascist. Okay? So, we don't have to have death camps to be a fascist. We don't even have to have a dictatorship to have fascism. You know what fascism is? Textbook definition. Fascist is not for economic sake. Not laissez-faire capitalism, nor liberal communism, but a third way where business and government work together through the process of corporatism to improve society by utilizing the divisions between the classes to the advantage of society as a whole. Tell me where I'm wrong, folks. This is a fascist economy we're in. So I'm not saying that we should, you know, that the Europe should replace their economy with what we have right now. I want a true capitalist society. Capitalism is not a bad word. You notice how easy it is for someone that's like 19 years old and doesn't have anything to be a socialist? Because you start talking about redistributing wealth, they figure they must be on the receiving end of that because they don't have anything. Hey, well, 19-year-old kid, look to your parents that are paying for you to go to school. It's their wealth that will be redistributed. They're already redistributing it to you. They'll get to redistribute it to somebody else that's less entitled than you are. So I don't think it's a false choice. And what he ends with is the false choice is just an attempt to scare people away from much-needed progress. Much-needed progress. That's what the communist always says. It's about the betterment of society, the needs of the whole versus the needs of the one. Well, it's with, with socialism, which is communism light, let's be honest. It's the betterment of society at the expense of the producer for the betterment of the non-producer. I don't think we can have socialism in our country and have it work out at all. What eventually happens is your republic falls due to economic catastrophe, because you're asking the laws of economics to change because you don't like them. And that's not going to happen. Supply and demand exists. The supply and demand curve exists. The fact that human beings work as hard as they have to to get the minimum amount they feel that they're going to be happy with and no harder exists. De-incentivizing people by making them work twice as hard for the same money, ends up in them burning out, quitting, and doing less. These are all fundamental facts. They won't change because a progressive 
doesn't like this. And for those of you that maybe have never heard me talk about politics, make sure you understand this is not a message about why we need Republicans in office. Because they've sold us out just as much as Democrats. This is why, folks, on the Democrat side, if you're a registered Democrat or registered Republican, in the primaries this year, the primaries, go vote out your incumbents. Get rid of them all. Let's turn the whole thing over. I don't mind a Democrat if he believes in the Constitution. And I don't mind a Republican if he believes in the Constitution. I'm just having a hard time finding a lot of those lately. All right, let's go on to something else. And I'll put a link to that old show if you want to check it out. Check out this, uh, this guy's comment. Okay, this question comes from a guy called Ben, but Ben's in Japan. So I may have to do a little bit of education here on what our Constitution actually says so that he'll understand my position. Um, recently, there's been two subjects I have questions on. My first question is about the show on rights on having guns. What are your thoughts on gun owners having to apply for a license to properly carry a gun? This license would show that the owner knows the proper use and safety of having a gun. I don't fully understand why we need a license to drive a car, but not need one to carry a gun. Okay, stop. We'll just go right there because the rest of this question isn't really that uh, necessary or germane to the question. This is why. Uh, first of all, in our country, there are a large group of people that would tell you that we shouldn't have to have a license to drive in the car in the first place because we have a right to free travel. I'm a big believer of pick your battles. I'm not sure those people are necessarily wrong. Please don't email me and give me a diatribe about why you're right about not needing a driver's license. The way I look at that, though, if I want to be devil's advocate and just say, okay, we are going to have driver's license. Um, a public road is built with public money uh, from the tax system. When we drive on that road, we have a reasonable expectation of safety because we funded the road. Collectively, in our form of government, which is a republic, not a democracy in this country, we have agreed that there should be some level of requirement to get behind the wheel of a motor vehicle and drive it down the street. We also allow people to drive when they are 16 years old, in some states 15 years old, and we have people side-by-side side driving hundreds of miles every day. We have freeway systems that people are forced onto, whether they really want to be there or not. One way or another, as we look at this, we have a system that formed after the foundation of our Constitution. When our founders put together the Constitution and did the Bill of Rights, and they looked at America, and they said the right to travel freely, they meant that your travel would not be impeded. Uh, there was no paved roads. There were some brick ones, but there were no blacktop roads. There was no highway system. In 1940, if you wanted to drive across this country, there wasn't even a true interstate system. You took Route 66. The, the, the modern highway system came after uh, Dwight Eisenhower. So I don't, you know, that's, that's a driver's license, and there's a lot of reasoning that could be argued on both sides, the right to free travel, and then the development of the interstate highway system and modern roads, and the motor vehicle, which wasn't even conceived of when the founders said we had the right to travel freely. So to me, as long as your progress is not impeded, um, it's still possible that we may license you based on the mode of transportation that you choose, if you choose to drive a vehicle, all right? So vehicles are regulated, therefore licensing them on them kind of makes sense. However, the same is not the true with owning a gun in this country. Owning a gun in this country is safeguarded by our Second Amendment. Let me remind you of what it says. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not 
be infringed. I've said this before. In legal, legal language, when you put into a contract or a document, shall not. It is an absolute. There is no but maybe. It's point blank cut and dry. So I believe that all of the regulations we have are already unconstitutional, and I'm not willing for them to go any further. With concealed carry licenses, since that's the way things are now, I comply with the requirement to get one because it's been made available to me, and I don't want to see the freedom eroded any further. But the way you're asking the question there, uh, Ben, you're asking the question as though anybody who owns any gun would have to have a license. And that's complete crap. And I'm not going to let that happen in my country. You do what you want in Japan, where you already have massive restrictions on the ability to own a firearm. But here in America, we have the Second Amendment, and we are not going to give up any more of our freedoms, period. The end, uh, as it says in the Bible, and I'm not a preacher, and I'm not preaching at you, but I just believe in wisdom wherever I find it, to hither thou shalt come and no further. Plain and simple. You've come far enough, you're not getting any more. So... That's how those two are different, and that's how that argument should be turned around on anybody that makes it. Well, yeah, you have a license to drive a car. Fine. There's no place in the, in the Constitution where it says the right of the people to drive a motor vehicle shall not be infringed. But there is a place in the Constitution where it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms, which while arms have evolved, the founders do very well, that meant firearms. And in the War of 1812, private citizens owned cannons and fired, shot down on the British as they invaded Washington. So when the founders said keep and bear arms, they meant the most advanced firearms available at the time. So I believe that being able to own long guns, handguns, uh, semi-automatics and things like that, absolutely protected by the Constitution, and shall not be infringed simply means shall not be infringed. All right, his next question. Um, you had a show on taxes. I understand, if I understood you correctly, you're against paying taxes. Or do you understand that some taxes are required to run a society? I believe there are too many unrequired taxes that are too high. Um, here's the thing about that. I never said that we, there should be zero taxation, period. What I said is that the role of government should be quite limited. The role of government should be to provide for a common defense, to ensure that we can uh, partake in commerce from our country and internationally, and to make sure that people can freely transport themselves throughout our nation. Uh, we don't need a government anywhere near, and, and, and provide for national defense as well. We don't need anywhere near the size and scope of government we had to perform those functions. So things like, you know, right now we have a, a gas tax at a state and federal level. Well, massive amounts of that money never go to build new roads or bridges. They're hijacked in other programs. So if we just had things like motor fuels tax and a basic sales tax, and we got rid of all the other taxes on energy and, and all these other things, our economy would thrive and grow and improve for everybody. And opportunities would improve for everybody. If we got rid of Social Security, and again, the people that have been lied to and are kind of hooked into the system now, we have to find a way to, to pay out what we've promised them. And as we come down in age to wean people off of that and do away with that program in the next 20 years, or it's going to bankrupt our country, Medicaid has to go. National health care, a disaster. All right, The Constitution doesn't grant you the right to medical care. And if you're going to go see a guy who spent 10 years of his life before he could call himself a doctor buying a, a world-class education, then you should have to pay him something and not five bucks. Okay? So, yeah, there's a place in society for taxes, but it's probably about a tenth of what we pay today. And I ask you honestly, 
If we cut taxes by 90%, we cut government waste and spending by 90%, how big of an expansion would that create in our economy? How much would that free up for people to keep their wealth and reinvest their wealth? And how much would that incentivize people to work harder and innovate? I remember my first big lesson in how taxes worked and how oppressive things were. Um, at the time I was a young man, I was making about $35,000 a year, which to some people sounds like a lot, but it's not a lot of money. And I was struggling at 35000 a year just to have the basic things that I wanted in my life. And I worked really, really hard, and I moved from 35000 to 50000 I got a $15,000 a year raise. And at that time, I was a little bit open to socialist and progressive concepts and, you know, the rich should pay more. And I thought, well, 50000 is not rich. Well, what happened is I figured out that in the next year, I actually kept an extra $1,400 because I moved the tax bracket. So out of $15,000 in a raise, I only got 1400 of it. I worked very hard for that extra $15,000, and um, I learned that I would work hard to get very little more. And that's what happens in a society that becomes addicted to taxation and starts class warfare and starts saying, well, we're going to tax the rich. And here's what happens, folks. Today they say, well, wealth is 200000 and they put a huge tax on people making 200000 And you say, so what? I don't care. Well, what you don't realize is they just put – the, uh, the the play piece out in front of the ball because they know as they continuously devalue money, salaries rise, and it'll never be two hundred thousand. We've already had taxes go up for everybody in this country since the new administration took over. And uh, George Bush raised taxes, by the way. Uh, Ronald Reagan raised taxes. Bill Clinton raised taxes. George Bush Senior raised taxes. There isn't a president in the last thirty years that didn't raise our taxes. They did tax cuts on one side, tax increases on the other. We pay more every year. Tax Freedom Day has never marched backwards for anyone, ever. That's the big lie of government. That's the big promise that's never kept with taxation, that it's for the betterment of society. Okay, let's go with a totally different question, because I know maybe some of you want me to get off the uh, economics and politics here. Uh, hi, Jack. I uh, thought of another question for you. This comes from Chris. For a person who carries concealed, how often do you think the ammo in that weapon should be replaced? What I mean is over time from carrying a weapon, um, people will empty the weapon, strip it down, clean it out of lint or build up that's inside, as well as oil up the parts again. I do this probably once a week to once every other week, give or take. Cycling the ammo in and out of the chamber, I imagine, will wear on it after a while. When's a good time to change out the ammo? Is there ever a need to change it at all? In my case, I have a, I have 40 caliber ammo. Thanks a lot. Okay, here's the deal on this. Number one, I don't think you should be cycling the ammo in and out of your weapon. Uh, because that will wear on uh, ammunition. And over time, if you take, let's say, a semi-auto, and you take your magazine that's inserted in there, or should I call it a clip just to make people annoyed, um, and you, you just kind of cycle that action and eject all the shells, right? I mean, it looks cool, but every time a shell, a cartridge is pushed into the chamber, there's a little bit of pressure on the bullet itself. That can cause two things. One, it can cause slight deformation of the round, or the slug, or the bullet, right? And that's not a huge deal with handguns, because it's a relatively short-range weapon in the first place, so accuracy is not that big a concern. But the other thing that can happen is over time, that slug can be pushed further back into the the cartridge than was intended as it overpowers the crimp that's holding it in place. That can compact your powder and cause misfires or excessive pressure discharges. 
So both of those are bad. So I don't think you should be cycling your cartridges through your weapon in the first place. What I think you should do is have multiple magazines, and you should take manually using your thumb, and every couple weeks strip all the rounds out of uh, your magazine, get your other magazine, and put them back into that one to keep rotating magazines. If you carry a second magazine, so you have two, then you should have at least four. And six makes more sense, or if you carry one, three makes more sense, and do a three-part rotation. What you don't want is the springs of the magazines that develop memory becoming weak, so that when you fire your first couple rounds and go off, maybe then the magazine has trouble feeding the shells up into uh, the action of the handgun if it's a semi-auto. So, number one, stop cycling your rounds through your weapon. Number two, if you're going to carry, I think you should take your ass to the gun range at least once every three months at an absolute minimum and fire your weapon to stay in tune with it and stay proficient with it. When you do that, make sure you fire the ammunition that you generally carry in your weapon. That'll cause an automatic quarterly minimal rotation. So you don't even have to think about it anymore, okay? Um, next up, how long do you really have to store ammunition kept clean and dry and safe? I have uh, ammunition in 8 millimeter that came from Turkey uh, from the 1930s uh, that's on, uh, on five-round stripper clips designed for Turkish Mausers. Um, and when I take that out and fire that in one of my old Mausers, I would say that 98% of those rounds go bang and work exactly like they're supposed to. Now, that ammunition is, you know, what, 80 years old? And it probably wasn't taken that great a care of. So I don't really worry about ammunition going bad in your carry firearm. But what I do worry about is, is things like the ammunition getting banged around again and, and the, the slug or the bullet actually becoming compacted down into the cartridge based on uh, being carried around. So that's why I don't recommend hand-loaded ammunition uh, unless you're using a device called the Lee Factory Crimp Die um, because it will put a factory-style crimp on the cartridge for carry. And I still don't recommend uh hand-loaded ammunition for carry, especially concealed carry. Um, it's another ammunition point for uh, an overzealous district attorney to say, you loaded this weapon as a man killer or some stupid crap like that. But for full reliability, the best place you can go is good quality factory ammunition and rotate it about four times a year. Not because the ammunition will go bad. I've got, you know, I've also got uh, boxes of shells that I have in storage that I occasionally pull out and fire that are 20, 30 years old. And uh, they always seem to, to work just fine. I don't notice any higher incidents of misfire or uh, uh, failure to feed or failure to eject than I do with, you know, ammunition I bought the store shelves today. Ammunition stores very well. But as you're carrying it around in a weapon, especially if you're occasionally doing that cycling nonsense, you can um, affect the cartridge physically. And to me, that's a bigger concern. And like I said, you should be shooting your weapon, you know, four or five times a year minimum anyway. So just use that as an opportunity uh, to not just check the fire and make sure it's performing adequately, but to go ahead and rotate the ammunition because you got to shoot something. So why not shoot the, the ammunition that you carry and intend on relying on? So if there is a problem, you find out at the range versus when you need it to perform. All right, let's take another question. Here's another one that's going to sign kind of political and anti-socialist and all, and we'll try to get off of that after this one. But I promised I would do this and talk about this. Um, a really good friend of the show named Greg Cecil has a brother 
And his brother emailed Greg, and Greg forwarded the email on to me. And it was kind of to the effect of a lot of these countries, I said something about like Denmark and, and, and all, like socialism doesn't even really work there. And he said maybe we should look at how much of the U.S. defense spending uh, impacts the ability of a many of these, these socialist countries to not spend that money and to redirect it to things other than that. And, and I think he's got a little bit there, but I made a comment back in an email to, to, to Greg and his brother, and I said, hey, I said one of the things that people don't realize is how much of their prescription drug benefits and low-cost uh, medical care is subsidized by the United States, and neither one of them had ever heard of that, and they want to know how that works. Well, here's how it works. Pfizer operates in the United States of America. Merck operates in the United States of America. Johnson & Johnson, I'm not targeting anyone, but let's say you're a big drug company, you're a drug company, and you operate in the United States of America, and you buy and pay for congressmen so that you can get crap done that, that really shouldn't be done. And you pay a token to the government to the tune of about $9 billion. And that's part of why drugs are so expensive. It costs a drug company $9 billion to get a new drug on the market. Now, that makes me wonder why a lot of times we're putting new drugs on the market that aren't really new drugs and just a reformulation for a new patent or whatever. Where did that go? So you've spent $9 billion to get this drug on the market in the United States. Now, you already know that you're going to make, let's say, $30 billion in your first five years in profit in the United States of America with that new drug. You know it or you wouldn't spend $9 billion. People don't spend $9 billion and, and hope it's going to work out. They've already done the research, the demographics. They already know exactly what distribution channels they have. They know what they're going to surplant. They know what the competition's doing. They know they're going to make $30 billion for this $9 billion investment uh, by putting advertisements on to tell you to tell your doctor what drug to give you. Okay? And now you've got that in the bag. So when a country like Austria or Denmark or Canada or Mexico, or anybody else says, hey, we'll buy your drugs, Mr. Drug Corp., but we want a special deal. Well, because you've already guaranteed your return of investment in your country where you operate, because you control the system so tightly, you can now sell to these countries at a huge discount, and you still make a huge profit margin on the medications that you sell to them. And you're not encumbered by the U.S. regulations when you sell it to these foreign institutions. How does that subsidize? Well, let me put it to you this way. If the United States people paid the same price that Europe pays for drug codes medication, Europe wouldn't be able to buy them that cheaply. It's our wealth that fuels research, development, distribution, clinical trials, etc. And after we pay for it all, and pay for it a second time by buying the crap that they tell us we need, then European countries and other socialist countries are able to purchase the same medication for less. But without our money, those drugs don't exist in the first place. Because there's not a whole lot of drug development going on in Germany, in Holland, and Denmark for cancer treatment and all. You know, I, I bash the pharmaceutical companies sometimes, but there are drugs that are developed that save tremendous numbers of lives. The pharmaceutical industry isn't all bad. Putting our children on medications that are basically methamphetamine because they don't sit in their chair right, evil. And the people behind that should be strung up from a tree. 
But developing a new medication that treats a cancer that wasn't previously treatable, amazing. That happens more here than anywhere else, and we pay for it, and then it gets redistributed at a discount to the rest of the world. That's why countries can say, well, look, we're just a little bitty country, and we're able to provide free medical, medical care to all our people. Well, those people are paying 70% taxation, right? And we're subsidizing it by being the producer and having our production redistributed to the rest of the world. How's that sit with you? So let's get off the politics. No more today. No more economics today. Uh, we've done enough of that. Let's take a, an email from a listener. It's kind of a lesson learned. This, this, this listener's name is Christopher. Christopher says, hey, thanks for the great work you do. A friend of mine was just recently had his laptop stolen in a situation out of his hands. He did not have a backup of his information, documents, files, etc., which was in his hands. It's just one of those things he never thought would happen to him. Now, um, Years of work, master's degree assignments, pictures, thousands of dollars worth of music, etc. are just gone. Never to come back ever again. It's like a large piece of his life was just taken away from him. I think making regular backups of all your files and keeping them in a safe is an essential form of being prepared in today's society. As many people keep so much of their lives on computers, besides theft, a hard drive can just crash. It's also easier to grab a small external hard drive if you need to leave very quickly than a desktop. Um, You're right. There's some things I have to point out to people, though. I know people that have really good, sophisticated backup systems in their home. They have all their computers networked because they're an IT guy or something, and they have this little chassis that almost looks like something you'd see in a computer room in an office building and a couple hard drives in there. They might even have it organized, and one hard drive's for pictures and one's for video and one's for documents or something like that. And it's constantly backed up. Maybe your machine runs it by itself. Even if you're, you know, you're, you've set up your wife's computer, so it does it without her even having to think about it. And they feel really good about that. Well, if your house burns down, all those backup drives go with your computers. So, to me, if you really want to safeguard your data, one of the safest things you can do is use a service like Carbonite, uh, which are not a sponsor, and I have no financial interest in this company whatsoever, uh, but it's a very secure remote backup service so that your data is kept off-site. So the odds of something blowing up your house and blowing up a Carbonite uh, data facility at the same time are uh, not very likely. Now, people have security issues. As far as I can tell, looking at Carbonite with their service, it's very, very secure. That said, I don't use them myself because I don't like the expense. Uh, I perform backups of what I consider critical data. I put them on DVDs, and I actually keep them uh, at a location other than the house uh, in a very secure place where they are protected from fire and damage. You can probably figure out that that probably involves a bank and one of those little metallic boxes. Um, so I don't really like keeping a lot of money there after some things I've learned about uh, what can happen to your uh, safe deposit box, but uh, keeping critical data in a safe deposit box is probably a pretty good idea. Making additional copies of data for redundancy and keeping them on portable drives makes a lot of sense, especially data that you may need right away. Um, of course, every time you make new copies of data, you give additional ammunition to people that may want to come after you someday from people like the IRS. So be careful about what you think you need to keep. Uh, sometimes people, I think, keep too many things. But when we're talking about a lot of things that have sentimental value, uh, things that you've written, uh, work that you've done, uh, that you want to keep, pictures, things like that, and then critical personal information that you might need in an emergency, please, yes, this guy's right. Make sure that you're backing that stuff up. I think that's a great suggestion. 
and something everybody needs to think about probably a little more often than we tend to. I also think you need to make sure that your laptops are very secure to the point where a person getting their hands on it would have a very difficult time ever breaking into them. There's so much information about people that would be gained by getting their computers. Um, make sure you're using good secure password uh, techniques on your laptop. Uh, I actually use a fingerprint recognition uh, technology with my laptop. and You can have a password and you're not getting in. Uh, you have to have a fingerprint and... To be smart, I uh, made sure that it was programmed to accept uh, uh, more than one of my fingerprints, I'll say that, so that uh, if I ever get a finger cut off or something, you know, I I can still get in. And I've actually made it accept a fingerprint from another individual so that if something happened to me that somebody can still get into it, but that if somebody got their hands on it, basically they would have to kind of start from square one and not get the data off it, unless they're like a super hacker, which, hey, we're always going to have those people out there. But at least if it ends up in the hands of the random criminal, it's going to be easier for them to start from square one with it than to try to access the data that's on it. So uh, make sure that you're thinking about what's going to happen to the data, not just that you won't have it anymore, but who else will have it if something like a laptop gets into the wrong hands because they do have a tendency to walk away at the first opportunity. Let's throw kind of a gardening permaculture one in in just for good measure today. Wayne says, I have a yard slightly less than an acre, so that's a pretty big yard. Nine oak trees and one sycamore. I have an opportunity to have the trees removed for a pretty good price. Should I remove the trees to make room for semi-dwarf and dwarf fruit or nut trees? I'm really torn about removing the trees as they do provide shade in my yard. I already have an open, unshaded area for gardening. I plan on square, square foot gardening this year and getting away from old-fashioned rows, but do not have a room for fruit trees due to oaks taking the available space. Your opinion would be appreciated. Thanks. If I had an acre yard with nine beautiful oaks and one beautiful sycamore tree in it, I absolutely, with an acre, there's no way in hell I would remove all those trees. I've already responded to this guy email just so he doesn't uh, make his own decision and given him this answer by email. I'll give it to everybody because I think sometimes when I talk about removing unproductive trees, People tend to not understand what I'm talking about. Trees are symbiotic creatures. They need other trees to flourish. Your oak trees and your sycamores can help you grow more trees. First thing I would say is maybe there is a place for removing some of them, but not all of them. So maybe you look at the way the solar exposure hits, and whatever the south side of those trees are, maybe you go in and take three or four of them out and harvest their materials. Understand additionally that oak trees are a productive tree. They provide acorns. Uh, Acorns can be a very useful food item properly prepared, especially if you have white oaks. So they're productive trees in and of themselves. So what that would allow you to do, maybe you go and you take out two or three of these trees that are most advantageous to free up some space to grow dwarf trees. Ideally, again, the south side of the trees is where you want to make this change. If it's not the south side, wherever you can get the longest solar exposure, use the existing trees as your canopy layer. Now plant semi-dwarf trees right where you've removed a few trees. You can plant more semi-dwarfs than the large trees you've removed because now you're going to get a stacking effect if you're on the south side where the the low trees are going to get good solar exposure because the shadows are cast to the rear as long as you're on the south side of your tree clump. Then in front of your semi-dwarfs, if you plant, let's say, four semi-dwarfs, plant eight dwarf trees. And then bring in an herbaceous layer 
and bring in climbers and maybe some clumping bamboo and things in between them and use those oaks to help create a forest. I, I, I almost wonder if I came out there and looked at it for you, with a little bit of pruning, maybe we could remove none of those trees. Depends on how spaced out they are and how they were originally planted. But I guarantee you, you do not need to remove all of them or even half of them. You need to selectively remove a few and maybe prune a few others to allow some light in. And then maybe you can even go back into your little oak forest a little bit where you get some sunlight in and plant forest plants that maybe people generally think of as garden plants. A lot of squashes are actually forest plants. That's why they have those huge leaves. So maybe you go in and allow some of the some squash or bean plants with large leaves to actually crawl up your oaks out toward the edge between your semi-dwarfs and the trees you leave remaining. But God, no. If you have an acre lot with nine beautiful trees, do not cut them all down. Selectively cut only what's necessary to add things in. Then also get creative in other parts of your, your yard. You may find, I don't have room for true, fruit trees, uh, but if you do some espalier, uh, uh, along your fence lines you, and along the walls of your home, you may be able to put a tremendous amount of fruit trees into your property without actually having to take up the space a tree conventionally does because the tree then grows flat, almost like a grapevine, along a structure. And if it's uh, a fruit that uh, loves hot weather, you want to put it on something that's like a, a brick wall of a house uh, will help a lot. And it will also shelter the house in the summertime and help cool the house. So there's so many things that you can do outside of just clear-cutting those trees. But please, nobody ever just go out and chainsaw a grove of oak trees or anything else like that without first considering how I can do less, just because I said to plant more productive trees. Um, there's moderation and balance in all things. And in a true permaculture forest, food forest, there are – Trees that we consider producers for humans, and there's trees that exist to serve other niches in the ecosystem, such as providing shade, providing mulch, providing biomass. One thing you have to understand about those oaks and those sycamores, the leaf drop that they provide every year is massive, and that's all biomass that can be turned into mulch and compost. Additionally, having those trees in your area is collecting a massive amount of moisture out of the atmosphere, and you may be getting underneath those trees 10 or more inches of effective rainfall a year just from the condensation drip that occurs every morning as the condensation that forms overnight drips from the tree canopy to the ground. So find a way to make things work together in these situations. Don't go out and murder all your trees. When I say go out and kill something, I'm talking one or two unproductive trees, not a grove of productive oaks. That's, uh, that would be a mistake. Here's a, this is an interesting one, and I'm, I'm glad we have this. This comes from Greg, different Greg. Um, Greg says, for the past few years, I've kept a, bu- a bob, a bug out bag, next to the bed of my boy's room. I've instructed him to grab the bag and get out in an emergency. He's seven years old. My wife thinks, however, that we should remove the bag and train the kids to just get out, thinking a fire at night would be the most likely emergency. She's afraid the bob could be a distraction that could cost precious seconds. I tend to agree. What are your thoughts? Um, Greg, I think your wife is right, and your gut's telling you your wife is right. And when your gut says, husbands, when your gut says my wife is probably right about something, um, it's probably because your wife is right about something. Uh, when your wife feels strongly about something, odds are she's 
probably right about that, too, as long as she's informed to the situation, because women's intuition is very strong, and we as husbands need to learn to rely on that contribution a little bit more than I think a lot of us do. So I'm with you on this one. Now, here's what I say. Kids should have a bug out back. But I don't necessarily think it belongs in their bedroom, and I really never thought of this before until you asked this question. That's why I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I generally keep my bug out bag in my vehicle. Uh, once my son's old enough to drive, his emergency kit's in his vehicle most of the time. So if you're getting out of the house, your, your bag's not already in there. I'm not big on keeping bug out bags in the home in the first place. If you're going to do that for whatever your individual reason is, I say you be responsible for your son's bug out bag up until the point that you get out of the house together. Kids should be instructed if you perceive an emergency, exit the home as quickly as possible. I am completely in agreement with that. And the odds are that if you need to get up in the middle of the night and get out of the house, fire being the most likely culprit is probably dead on. And in a fire, you need to be less worried about a bug out bag and more worried about immediate survival because seconds will kill in in a home fire. Generally, people don't die of heat and flame. They die of smoke inhalation. You hit the floor, you keep low, and you get out quick and have a plan for that. But if you want to keep your bug out bag in the home and you have children, especially children that are, you know, let's say under 16 years of age, you be responsible for their bug out bag getting it out of the home. Uh, and, and, again, I think it makes a lot of sense to keep your bug out bags in your vehicles because it's very easy if you need something from it at home to go out to your car, open your trunk or your locked box or whatever, pull it out and get it. But if you're away from home and something happens and you need your bug out bag, the whole purpose of your bug out bag is actually to get you home. So it doesn't belong in your house in the first place. So I would put your sons with yours or your wives in one of the family vehicles, and when he gets old enough to have his own vehicle, I would move it to his vehicle. I would also make sure that your children, when they have bug out bags, are familiar with them, familiar in an unscary way about why they need to be there in the first place, so that if there ever is an emergency, that bag actually becomes one of the child's comfort items, because they know that they're prepared and they're ready to deal with the situation. Now, God... Come on, guys, don't go scaring your kids and telling them all kinds of horror stories. Just say, hey, you know, one day something could happen, and Mommy and Daddy might say, hey, we have to go somewhere because something dangerous happens. It's probably not going to happen, Johnny, but it could. And if it does, we're smart, so we'd be prepared. You know, we're prepared. And this is what we're going to do if it ever happens. We're going to go Uncle Joe's, or we're going to go to the lake house, or whatever. And if he says, well, what could happen? You say, I don't know, maybe one day there could be a fire. Because that is the most likely thing, right? If there's a fire, we need to get out of the house, and we need to make sure we still have some stuff. And, and if the kid says, well, hey, I want to protect my baseball cards, can I put them in my bug out bag? Absolutely. Put them in there. We're going to keep them in mom's car or dad's car or whatever. They'll be safe there. But your bug out bag doesn't belong in your house unless you've gotten it for a reason because you're most likely to need it when you're not home. And it's not something that you really want to transport back and forth every day because the one day you forget it's going to be the day that you need it. But awesome question. Thanks for that. Because, again, I guess because as I really geared up in my preparedness, my son was already, you know, he's 21 this summer. Uh, so he was already like 15 years old when we started really getting serious about this. And uh, I guess it was an issue I didn't really have to deal with. So uh, 
Uh, great question, man. Thanks for contributing that. Okay, here's another great question. Uh, it comes from a guy named Max. Hey, my dog's named Max. Cool name, dude. Um, and it's a short question, which I like short questions, but I'm not quite sure what he means. Um, but I think I know what he means. And the question is, what plants would you use in a bug-out bug location now if you had to? Trees, bushes, et cetera. For those that might be, this is one of your newer shows, you know, maybe one of your first shows, um, a bug-out location is a fallback location. So when I talk about my bug-out location in Arkansas, it's our second home. It's a place if everything went wrong here and we needed another place, it's where we would go. So it's a place that day-to-day in your day-to-day life, you're generally not there very often. So I think what he means is if I had to get my bug out location planted with some things that were usable so that if I went there, I didn't have to start from square one with my planting when I, when I plant uh, versus it, this could be read as if you had to bug out now and you had to start planting right now, what would you plant to get into production as fast as possible? I'm going to answer it the other way because I think that's what Max means. Um, and he says trees, bushes, etc. at the end. And I think you're right to think with trees and bushes because you're looking for perennials. But it's not the very first place I would start. The first place I would start is I would look at the property itself and I would say, what grows on this property? All by itself, that's edible. And I would then encourage that to continue to grow more, or I would find commercial alternatives for it. Um, an example would be if I was on a piece of property and I found a large amount of amaranth growing on the property, wild amaranth. Well, I would know that that property is, is very good at supporting amaranth. So in addition to encouraging the wild amaranth, I may go get commercial varieties of amaranth, uh, amaranth that have been worked with by humans for a long time, something like golden giant or orange giant or Hopi red dye, and I might buy a tremendous amount of amaranth seed and mix up what are called seed balls, which is a combination of clay, uh, and compost and seed. And I might throw seed balls all over open spaces on that property and believe that if wild amaranth can grow all on its own, it's possible with a large seeding of large amaranth that not only can I get a lot of big amaranth growing on that property, producing biomasses as it, it, it decomposes at the end of each year, at the end of its life cycle, but a reseeding uh, going on as well as uh, one amaranth plant can produce up to one pound of seeds which is, you know, 10,000 seeds or more from one plant. Uh, so that's pretty high odds that we get reseeding there. Uh, but I would look at things like, uh, do lamb's quarters grow on the property? And if they do, I would take an area where lamb's quarters are growing, and I would sculpt the land using rocks and depressions and things like that and funneling water flow and mulching the area so that the lamb's quarters that are already there grow better. I would look at other plants. We talked about orach yesterday. Orach is a great plant. It's a relative to lamb's quarters, but it's a little bit different in uh, – in its uh, growth and taste and texture, so it adds variety. And maybe I make up a bunch of seed balls that don't just have amaranth but also have orach, and I let those two plants grow together. I would look, are there any berries growing on the property? If blackberries are growing on the property, this is a perfect example. I have blackberries on a lot of my property in Arkansas. All we did, all we did was go in and prune out some of the old growth to make room for the new, put rock rings around the blackberries, and put about six inches of natural mulch, which just leaves and litter from the forest floor that we gathered up and put in the rocks. The rocks were designed to hold that mulch in place. That provided compost for the blackberries. It provided moisture retention. They were already growing with no help. The size and yields of these berries doubled 
through that action. So you start by working with what you have and looking for commercial varieties. So obviously, one of the plants that we know we can plant and do very well with in our property in Arkansas are domesticated varieties of larger blackberries uh, that we can take the same approach with, and once established, they should perform as well or better as the native species of blackberries. Moving on from there, yes, trees and bushes. I would start with bushes uh, and, and things like that. So you're looking at things like goji berry, gooseberry, um, service berry, autumn olive, uh, all your uh, your bushes and vines, kiwi fruit, uh, grapes, uh, even you know wild muscadines. Uh, if they're native to the area, maybe you can go out and find some wild growing muscadines. Cut uh, vines and root them, and get them and retransplant them onto your property. Start with what grows wild or commercial varieties of what goes wild all the way up the chain, but go to bushes uh, because they're going to get into production much quicker, and you're going to have a perennial food supply out of them. As you move into trees, start with trees that get into production quickly. Semi-dwarf and dwarf trees get into production much faster than full-size trees. Uh, make sure that you're doing things to maximize water utilization, again, by land sculpting and mulching, because you're not there often to take care of them. And then go ahead and try things like find a natural depression with a little bit of sunlight coming in, plant a few runner beans in a forest, and let them grow up the trees. You might be surprised at the results that you would have from that. Your last thing, though, are your large trees, because you might be five to six years into production. So that in some ways means you need to get on them first, but if you want to make sure that there's food available, cultivate the wild, augment the wild with domesticated varieties of those wild plants, then move into bushes and vines and of a perennial nature, again, emulating what's naturally available. Uh, maximize water utilization from every drop of rainfall that hits the ground through sculpting the land permaculture style. Then focus on your larger trees so that you can get production from the property as quickly as possible. And try to visit it at least six times a year. If you do that, you can probably give it enough attention to get it going rather well within one to two years. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up today. Uh, again, make sure that you join me tonight on the Rifleman Radio Show with the Appleseed Project, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'll be able to take your calls and your questions live on the air. I look forward to doing that. I think we're going to have a great show tonight, folks. While we were doing the show, I just want you to know that the snow, it is now snowing more than it was. I'm watching a squirrel eat sunflower seeds out of the feeder, and his entire back is covered in snow, and Max the dog is eyeballing him out the window. So, I think I'm going to sign off today. I'm going to go open the door, let Max chase the squirrel away, because that's one of his favorite things to do. I'm going to enjoy the rest of the snow, uh, and I'm going to uh, enjoy the rest of this day. Thanks for starting out your day with me here at the Survival Podcast. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler. It doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent